Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Stop what you are doing. Stop what you are doing. Tell whoever is irritating you right now, whoever is interrupting you, tell them the Theology Central podcast is on the air and they need to leave you alone, right? If you if you're driving, you can drive, but you're going to have to reach over to the passenger side and get your thinking cap and you're going to have to put it on your head, right? I need everyone to grab their thinking caps and put them on because I need you to I need you to think with me about some very important concepts related to the doctrine of sanctification and hopefully this will be proved to be a fruitful conversation and fruitful means not only do you hear me hopefully you will engage this topic and struggle with this and even if you don't have a conversation with me even if you don't email me hopefully you'll talk to others about it be prepared that many will have strong <laughs> feelings that will go in an opposite direction than I'm trying to take us. But if you listen to this podcast on a regular and consistent basis, you know that's what we do here. Okay, We challenge and question everything, finding ourselves forever condemned to the abyss of the minority of the minority of the minority of the minority. All right. So, but hey, hey, I'm I'm willing to do that because I think Sometimes things need to be challenged, but are you ready? You got your thinking cap on, right? You told everyone to leave you alone. Okay. Are you ready? All right. Well, let's do a proper introduction. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, September the 12th, 2023. It is currently 3.17 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, I know it's been a week or so since we talked about the doctrine of sanctification, but in other ways, we continue to talk about the doctrine of sanctification, especially in our series on law and gospel. So if you're keeping up with our series on law and gospel, you know today in the broadcast earlier today, we talked about sanctification. And because we're doing the series on the proper distinction between law and gospel, we also started a series that we are calling Set Apart on the doctrine of sanctification. And we are slowly but surely moving through it. And I had a very specific place I wanted to go in this episode, but I'm going to throw out all of my plans. I'm going to throw out everything I had scheduled to do. And I'm just going to try to give you some concepts to think about. All right. So are you ready? Okay. As a Christian, we understand sanctification as being this concept of being set apart. Now, we, we, we have to understand there is a positional sanctification that we are sanctified in Christ, that we are set apart perfectly in our position. But usually when we talk about sanctification, we talk about this practical idea that practically in your life and my life, we are being set apart day by day, becoming more godly, becoming more holy, becoming more spiritual, becoming less carnal, less fleshly. We are being set apart. Now, here's what I want you to do. On one, so if you have a piece of paper, on one side, maybe on the far left side of the page, right, you can just write you. That's you, right? You can just write down the word Y-O-U, or you can draw a little stick figure. It's you, right? Then you can draw a line. All the way in the other set of the page, you can put holiness, godliness, or put this, practical holiness, practical godliness, practical righteousness. You want to make sure you put practical, right? You be, or you can abbreviate them if you want, because we know there's a positional righteousness and a positional holiness that is perfect. That is ours by faith alone. We don't have to do anything for that. Here's you on one side of the page, a little stick figure. There's this straight line you drew all the way across. On the other side, you've got practical holiness, practical righteousness. And sanctification, which we typically understand to be, prog- our practical sanctification is progressive. progressive. Our, our positional uh, sanctification is instantaneous, right? But our practical sanctification is progressive. Now, here's the thing. That line that goes all the way across, what stands between you. What is in the way 
of you going from way over here on the left side of the page all the way over here to practical holiness and righteousness? What are the things on this line that stand in the way? What are the object are the the obstacles? What are the objects that are go, trying to hinder you? What are the hindrances? What are the traps? What are the what are the detours? What are the things in the way? And now on that line, you can just write out all the things that you would perceive to be in the way of stopping you, hindering you from moving forward in your Christian life till you get over here to practical holiness, practical righteousness, uh, you know, uh, less worldliness, less carnality, whatever the case may be. What are those things on that line? Now, I really want you, I really want you to draw this out. I really do. And I really want you to, to, to place all of those things that are in the way, stopping you. Right? Now you got that? So I want you to draw that out. I think, I think that's a good, that's a good visual representation of what we're going to be talking about, right? So here you are on the left side of the page, way over on the right side of the page is where you want to go. You've got this line that shows you trying to go from here to here, but on that line, there's all these things in the way and you can, you can turn them into little, if you want to be artistic, be artistic. You can draw a little, you can, you can draw a little representate, representation of all of whatever these things may be. Right? And I'm not even offering any hints of what they could be because I want you to figure that because in reality, I think those things that are on that line, some of them are universal to all of us as Christians and some of them are very unique to you. You got certain things that hinder you from moving forward in your sancti- your practical sanctification that may not, I may not even be able to relate to, may not even understand. I'm like, I don't even know why you have that kind of problem. What we all have to realize is we've all got our own things on that, that line. Okay. So you, you mark them out now, or you mark them on that line. Now, here's what I want you to, to ask yourself. What is a major contributor? What is a major help in getting you from the left side of the page? To the right side of the page. What is the major thing that will help you overcome all of those obstacles? Right? What, what, what do you think is the major contributor? What is the major thing that will help you get from the left, left side of that page to the right side of the page? What is that major contributor? I really want you to think about it. Now, I, I could throw out some suggestions, but at least just consider that. So first, I want you to draw the little diagram. Left side of the page is you, right? On the far right side of the page, there that is practical godliness, practical holiness, practical righteous, righteousness. We're not talking about positional, right? Because that happens instantaneously. It's positional. But we're talking about progressive sanctification where you're slowly but surely being set apart. And then on that line, in between those are all the things that are standing in the way. What is the number one contributor to helping you move from the left side of the page to the right side of the page and overcoming many of those obstacles? What is the number one contributor? Now, we, we could throw out a lot of things here, but for the purpose of this episode, here's what I want you to ask yourself, all right? How does... New thinking. How does your thinking impact the so-called level of sanctification you are experiencing? How does your thinking impact your level of sanctification that you are experiencing? Now, I'm putting this forth as more like a hypothesis is because I'm moving my Bible and all of my notes here. I have in my hands the Bible Studies for Life Personal Study Guide Summer 2023. I know, you know, it's supposed to be finished, but I still have it here on my desk. And there is a lesson in here. I'm not going to go back and review all the previous lessons that we've covered. This one is called, in fact, go back a page. Set apart in the way we think. You turn the page, and this is what they have for the point. Living for Christ changes the way we think. 
So they seem to say, hey, living for Christ changes the way you think. But as you read it, it almost sounds like, no, no, no. Changing the way you think is what helps the way you live for Christ. They're like, hey, living for Christ changes the way you think. But in the roundabout way, when you start trying to read kind of the study, it really, to me, turns out, no, you have to change the way you think so you can live for Christ. But it's all about the way we think. So that inspired me to give you the assignment of creating that little, you know, that kind of little, you know, I don't want to call it a chart, the little diagram of your life, you on one side of the page, and then some type of practical godliness on the other side of the page with a line drawn, and then you draw on that line all the different things that can overcome it. Then I asked you, what is the number one contributor contributor in helping you overcome all of those things? And then this is the, 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 the emphasis here, and this is why I'm emphasizing this. How does your thinking How does new thinking, how does a change of your thinking impact the level of sanctification which you are experiencing? Because the study guide in front of me seems to imply, hey, hey, here's the thing. You want to live for Christ? You want, quote unquote, practical sanctification? You want to be godly? You want to be holy? You want to be, quote unquote, living a victorious Christian life, whatever that supposedly means? Well, then you just change the way you think. A change of thinking will help you achieve a certain level of sanctification. I want you to consider that as a hypothesis, and I want you to ask yourself, how does simply changing your thinking, listen, this is very important, impact the level of sanctification in your life? Is it that simple? Can, can we can we simply boil the Christian life down? Hey, really, it's very simple. Just change the way you think, and dun 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 da, you have now spiritual victory. Now we have to know because we've talked about this now for hours and hours, especially in our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We've even talked about it here in this series on sanctification and in numerous other series. We have mentioned this just so that we remember whatever you say is the number one contributor to get you from the left side of the page to the right side of the page to get you from where you are to some level of practical godliness and holiness. Whatever that thing is that you think is the secret is the key to get you there. We all know it's limited in its power. It's limited in its ability. Even if you say it's God that will get you from the left side of the page to the right side of the page. And he, maybe you go with a monergistic form of sanctification instead of a synergistic form. Whatever you say is the thing empowering, strengthening, or giving you the ability to do so, everyone has to come along and go, well, but I mean, you can't get to, well, sinless perfection. You can't get to true, you can't actually be holy because to be holy is completely set apart from sin. So you can never get to sinlessness. You can never get to perfection. You can never get to holiness. So immediately we have to know there's a limit to this, which obviously complicates it and brings up serious theological and philosophical questions. But we have to at least note that. So whatever you think would contribute the most to get you to the other side of the page, then I, then I want you to consider how does your thinking impact this? How does, like, if you were to really try to articulate, well, if I, if I think differently, boom, I achieve four levels up. I, I increase my level of sanctification four levels, five levels. I don't know if it's that simple, but of course, the study guide I have in front of me clearly is going to up pursue that line of reasoning. All right. Now you're ready for the next part. Are you ready for the next part? Here we go. I want you to try to articulate. You can do this on paper. You can do this however. I want you to really think, 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 think. How new thinking overcomes nature or can it even overcome nature? When I say nature, I'm talking your sinful nature, my sinful nature. Simply changing the way I think, does it have the ability to overcome my sinful nature? Now, I'm giving it a little bit of way. Right? I'm giving uh, giving it away a little bit, right? Because I told you to draw that little diagram, you on the left side of the page, and on the right side is practical godliness and holiness. And I told you to draw a line, and on that line, you know, our list or draw a picture of things that represent the things that are 
there in the way between you going from this to practical godliness and holiness. And one of the major things that should be on that line is your own depraved nature, which is not eradicated in salvation. It remains. It is still there. It is very much there. That's why when it's, it's ridiculous to look at Christians and say, practically, you're a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new because that is not true. Practically, that is true positionally. Practically, you still have a, a depraved nature, a sinful nature. So can your thinking overcome your nature or does your nature overcome your thinking? Now, when you think of the, the center of our thinking, the center of our reason, do, do we just, do we leave that simply in the brain? Or do we think that the, there's more to it than just our brain? It's maybe the Bible refers to it as our heart, right? Is that our, do we, we still maintain a sinful heart? So however you want to break man down, however you want to put, you know, nature, heart, however you want to break all of these concepts down, the question is, can you, I mean, how much impact does your thinking have on your depraved nature? Now, I don't, a lot of times when people talk about sanctification that we don't, they don't get into some of these serious issues, but we, you know, we're, I'm not afraid to do that because we really have to think these things down. We so, we so simplify this. We so dumb some of these concepts down that no one really has a good working understanding and how it works. So many people will sit in church and hear a sermon and go, amen. And five minutes after the sermon, if you pull them aside and go, no, wait a minute. How does it, how does this actually work? How do you actually apply this? How does this make any sense? And sometimes people are like, well, I mean, I don't know. Well, then why were you saying amen? Okay. Well, well, what does it mean? How does it work? So if, because again, the study guide in front of me seems to be presenting the idea that every, what matters is my thinking. If my thinking is right, then I move forward in my sanctification. But which has the greatest impact on you? Your thinking or your nature. If my thinking is changed and I have a new way of thinking, does that guarantee a certain level of victory over my nature or will my nature win out? over that way of thinking. These are critical theological concepts that we must give much time to. I want you to put all of that together, all right? So in review, I want you to take a piece of paper. On the left side of the paper, I want you to draw a little, you know, stick figure. That's you. On the other side of the page, right? The very other side of the page, I want you to write down words like practical godliness, practical holiness, practical righteousness, because we're not talking about our positional holiness and righteousness, which happens instantaneously, which is based off an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. I mean, this is the whole, you know, Protestant Reformation right here. Okay. So, but then you draw a line between the two. On that line, lay out all the things that stand in the way of you moving from over here towards practical godliness and holiness. All all of the things that are in the way, right? Then I want you to consider what would be the number one contributor from getting you to the left side of the page to anywhere close to the right side of the page. What is going to be the number one thing that helps you overcome all of these obstacles and traps and detours? All right. Then I want you to ask yourself, how does simply changing the way you think, getting new thinking, a new mindset, a new perspective, how does that impact your level of sanctification? Is it like, is it the key? Hey, if I get my thinking right, I can overcome all of these obstacles. And then next, I want you to consider how does new thinking overcome sinful nature? Which one wins out? Now, I offer all of these things, and I'm going to tell you what I'm basing this off of, because I've already, I've already given you a hint that this comes from the study guide, because in this study guide called, or this is session four in the study guide, set apart in the way we think, we will work through this in, in greater degree, we will work on it in greater degree, but look what they have right here. Guess what the scripture is for this study? 
Does anybody know what this, the scripture is for the study? It is Roman. You know, I, I shouldn't even have to ask. It's Romans chapter 12, because you know, this is the go-to verse for this entire concept, right? So let's read it. Romans chapter 12, right? We won't read the whole thing, but this will just get us started. I've given, now, I've given you those very clear assignments to think about, to work on, right? And I don't want to do too much of, of doing the actual work for you because this podcast has never been about having passive listeners, but active participants doing homework, turning us assignments. We've always been like that. We're never going to stop that. All right. So, but let's go to Romans 12 because this is the basis of their kind of their uh, entire perspective. And we'll do a little bit of reading of their perspective to kind of see how they try to articulate some of these ideas. Are you ready? Here we go. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And this is very important. The motivating factor here, the thing that should drive us, the thing that should move us is the mercies of God, not threats, not claiming, oh, oh, if you don't do this, you don't do this. It proves you were never saved. What proves my salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ because I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. My changed action can't be proof of an imputed righteousness because an imputed righteousness does not produce change practically. It only produces change positionally because it is imputed. It is not infused. And if we go with the infused idea, we're returning back to the Roman Catholic Church. You can read about imputed versus infused in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I believe it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is historical, biblical Christianity. At least we can call it historical, biblical, Protestant Reformation Christianity, right? And, and even if you reject it because you're like, well, I don't have anything to do with the Protestant Reformation. Well, you, st- you don't want to go back to Rome. So then you have to find someone articul- articulating it in a different way. But if you believe in an imputed righteousness as the basis of your justification, don't destroy that. But then claiming, making threats to people, if you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you prove you were never saved. Because any, any proof you require was fulfilled by Jesus Christ because his perfect obedience, passive and active obedience is imputed to my account by faith alone. All right, so we, we so destroy all of this, all right? But here we go. So what should motive, so look what happens. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he's beseeching you, he's pleading with you. He's gonna say, I want you to do something, but what, what's gonna motivate you is not a threat. It's the mercies of God. Because God, in his mercy, because you deserve nothing but wrath and judgment, sent his son to die for you, but not to die for you, to obey all of the law on your behalf. Now, that mercy then should then motivate me that I present my body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What should motivate me is God's mercy, not not threats. I cannot state that again. The number one motivating factor in your life to get you from the left side of the page all the way to the right side of the page in the little diagram, the one number one thing that should motivate you in progressive sanctification should be the constant reminder of God's mercy on your behalf, what he did for you in Christ Jesus. He paid for your sins. He kept the law for you. He died. He was buried. He rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. That should be the motivating factor, not threats, but God's mercy. What, what, what you need to, to motivate you is not, oh, if I don't do this and I got to do this and I, no, no, it should just look to the cross and there is your motivation because that blood soaked cross is the proof of God's mercy. And that should be the thing that motivates you. Not shame, not humiliation, not a scarlet letter, not threats of, of, oh, if you don't do this, you prove you're not saved. It should just be the mercy of God that should motivate us. And then it says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the study guide wants us to focus on this, that if we're going to be set apart, the renewing of the mind, the mind becomes, they believe, is kind of the 
Well, we'll read exactly how they explain it, but they seem to be pointing us in the direction. This is the key. I think the key, the main key is the mercy of God. That's the motivator. Now it says though, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now you can see how they're going to go through this, right? If mercy motivates, what transforms is the renewing of the mind, that the renewing of the mind equals transformation. Now that, that goes back to the questions that I already put forth here, right? I already put forth these. I'm not going to continue to review them because I've given them as an assignment. But here's the key. How does the renewing of your mind produce transformation? Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, in other words, here, think of it this way. This, I think you could state it this way. The renewing of the mind leads to transformation and it leads to knowing. The renewing of the mind is connected to transformation and it comes to knowing. Because how do I know the will of God? By being transformed in my mind, right? The transformation of the mind. Now, how does this transformation take place? Now, this is, the, see, this is where it's going to be hard to try to figure out the circle. If the transforming of the mind is what produces the transformation, and if it's the transformation or the renewing of the mind that produces the transformation, and it's the renewing of the mind that produces the knowing. Now, the knowing here isn't, well, I renew my mind, now I get secret knowledge about the will of God. No, the renewing of the mind helps you then see the scriptures more clearly, and the scriptures seeing the, that's where the will of God is determined, is in the scriptures, not in some secret inner voice, not a vision, not a dream, through the word of God. But here's the key. If I ask you, how do I renew my mind? You're going to give me a list of things. I got to do this. 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 But doing all of those things, you think are typically proofs of the transformation. So a lot of times you'll say, well, what do I got to do to transform my mind? Well, you got to read, you got to go to church, you got to pray, you got to do, and it's like 13 things. But then when I say, well, how do I know my mind has been renewed? Well, because you'll do all of these things. Well, wait a minute, which comes first? It's almost like the transformation leads to the renewing of the mind, but it's the renewing of the mind that's supposed to lead to the transformation. But the renewing of the mind, if it leads to a transformation, how much transformation can one hope or expect? And how does the, how do these two work together? Let me read it to you again. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay. Someone in chat using the Spreaker app just said this. Is the renewing of the mind a one-time associated with the initial change of mind and repentance, or are we seeing this as progressive? Sounds progressive. Good point. That's a very good point. On one hand, and we, and I am going to be dogmatic and assert this because I know, I know Christians don't agree. I know it's shocking that Christians don't even agree on the meaning of a word, but I do agree and will be dogmatic that I believe repentance is a change of mind. That's what it is. It's a, and now some people say it's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior, but you got to be careful with that because how much change of behavior does one have to do to prove somehow that the repentance is genuine? And then this becomes very workspace. But I do believe repentance at its very core is a change of mind. This sounds like something beyond that. So we do have a change of mind And initial salvation, we change our mind about sin, our God, Jesus. We're changing our mind about these very basic things. We don't have enough information to change our mind about much else. We just know, obviously, there's a God. Obviously, you're changing your mind about your life, acknowledging you are a sinner. Clearly, you're changing your mind and accepting that Jesus Christ paid for your sin and you're trusting in him. So there's the initial change of mind. This seems to be going beyond that. And uh, be not uh, conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think this is a step forward, that the, the renewing of your mind, right, is a continuing thing. You have to constantly be renewing your mind, right? And the renewing of your mind is then connected to transformation and it's connected to knowing, right? So we're in a, we're in a forever progressive renewal of mind, con- continually to to try to change it so that we can experience some level of transformation. Now let's see what the study guide does. I, I don't I don't want to go too much too far through this. I just wanted to give you these assignments, is what I wanted to give you. And I was just going to stop it there. But we'll at least proceed a little bit here. Okay. Here is what they say. Let's see if we can find some some interesting things to grasp onto here. All right. It says Romans 12 forces us to look backward to Romans 11 to see what was happening. This is important and will bear on the meaning of this study. Keep in mind that Paul had addressed the book to the believers in Rome. Uh, that's chapter 1, verse 7. At some parts of the book, he spoke to believers in general. In other portions, he spoke about issues relevant to Christians from a Jewish heritage or from a Gentile heritage. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul addressed how God viewed the Jews in light of the covenants and his divine prerogative to include Gentiles in his gospel plan. Paul reminded Roman uh, reminded Roman Gentile believers that the grace of God had come to them through the new covenant, this new sacred agreement between them and God, and, and, and had been occasioned by the failure of the Jews to fulfill all the responsibilities of the conditional agreement called uh, the old covenant. Now, only thing is, this gets back to our study on Jeremiah, our study of the covenants. The covenant wasn't made with believers or Gentiles, the new covenant was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It is absolutely dogmatically asserted in, in Jeremiah 31. There's no way to get around that, all right? But I don't want to get sidetracked and follow that. Okay, here we go. The, this fact and the reality that animal sacrifices were ultimately an impairment, an impairment, uh, impermanent, if I can read correctly, and permanent and insufficient means of removing human sin. All right, so let's say, say that again. This fact, but the covenant, and the reality that animal sacrifices were ultimately an, an impermanent and insufficient means of re- removing human sin made a new covenant necessary. Hebrews 10, 4 through 10. Jesus personally fulfilled the terms of the old covenant and initiated the new covenant at the moment of his death and fulfilled and fulfilled through his resurrection three days later. Now, again, we could really get into some discussions here. I don't want us to get sidetracked, all right? And I'm sorry that for some weird reason I couldn't read the word in, in permanent, in permanent, in permanent. Okay, there we go. Now, the next paragraph. It was on this basis that Paul issued several challenges to the Roman believers. He argued that in view of the mercies of God upon both Jew and Gentile, as seen in the lavish provision of the old and especially the new covenant, they were duty bound to do what God was commanding. Now, see, once again, you're duty bound to do it. I'm just saying, I think it's more, look, I plead with you. I beg you. In light of what God has done for you, do this. I don't think he's like, you are duty bound. I think especially in Romans 12, it seems much more like, hey, remember what God has done for you? All right. Now, the next page, they say this. And a direct reference to the sacrifices of animals' bodies in the old covenant and Christ's bodily sacrifice in the new, they were urged to present their own bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Paul considered this an act of true worship, appropriate and fitting in light of what God has done for them and for us. Okay, yes, based on what God has done for me, I should be motivated by his mercy to present myself as a living sacrifice. We're in, we're, we're in complete agreement with that. All right now, here we go. We still want to get to where the mind thing comes into play here. Are they going to offer us? I'm getting nervous because this whole thing is almost done and they're going to just move right on. But let's see if this next part is helpful, right? Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice is biblical, but it is also practical. In a previous session, we learned that the Bible views the passions and tendencies of our physical bodies as a source of frequent temptations and disobedience to God. 
We were commanded to put the deeds of the flesh to death and to consider our bodies as being dead to sin. Here, God balances that point by giving us a positive view of our bodies, telling us that that they are capable of being offered as a sacrificial form of worship that God welcomes. In addition, the believers in Rome were told not to be conformed to the present age, but to live in a way that is spiritually countercultural. Okay, they're still not giving us anything practical here, right? Next paragraph. Because living for Christ changes the way we think, this leads to a renewed mind. So their diagram is, you live for Christ first. This changes the way you think. This then leads to a renewed mind, which then results in a personal transformation. That's their outline here. So you start off, hey, live for Christ. If you live for Christ, um, and just follow this, this, this outline that they're providing. And I just don't know if this is the way it's supposed to work. Live for Christ. This will change the way you think. As you change the way you think, this will lead to a renewed mind. And then when this renew, your mind is renewed, this will lead to personal transformation. Right. Then someone say, well, how would they define living for Christ? Exactly. To me, living for Christ would seem to be transformation. If I'm living for Christ, why, what, what transformation do I need if I'm already living for him? I mean, this requires, this, this leads, that, that whole system there seems so confused to me. I can't live for Christ until I change my mind, right? That's why, isn't it? The whole thing starts with repent repent and believe the gospel. I change my mind and then I believe. So I start with an initial change of mind. As someone that says they are confused. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I know that, you know, my, my, uh, inability to read the word impermanent, impermanent, I can't even say the word now. Impermanent. All right. My in, my inability to read the word impermanent, impermanent, yeah, see, there you go, confuses me. But this is the real confusing part. This is a real, I have to actually go look at the word to read it correctly. All right, but I, I'm just going to read their outline again because their outline makes no sense. All right, here we go. Here we go. Let's, let's you may want to write this out. You may want to chart this out. I, I've given you all the other assignments. You may want to just write this out, diagram this out. All right, so this is the way it starts. You live for Christ. Step one. Step two, you live for Christ. This changes the way you think. This changes the way you think. This will then lead to a renewed mind. Then the renewed mind results in personal transformation. Hey, I'm going to live for Christ. My living for Christ is what changes my mind. Or changes the way I think. Now that leads to our renewed mind. And now that leads to personal transformation. Then they go, transformation is a spiritual condition so radical that the Bible uses the biological term metamorphosis. Transformation means to change form. When we become a child of God, our entire perspective, our entire value system, our ethical standards, our morality, our worldview begins to undergo a complete and transformational shift. This is what God intends. Now, it sounds like if it's such a dramatic metamorphosis, then you think spiritual, we should be able to be sinless. But we know we can't be sinless. So then is there ever truly a metamorphosis? I, I, I don't know. So how, how, like, what, yeah, I don't know what to say here. This outline is confusing to me. So, so let me go through this again. Let's outline it one more time. So I live for Christ. This will change the way I think. This will lead to a renewed mind. This will result in a transformation that is so radical that it's called, that it's referred to as a metamorphosis which means I will completely and literally change form. (laughs) 
oh, the wonderful world of the theology of sanctification in the modern evangelical church. It's almost a journey into, I don't even know what it is a journey into because it's so bizarre. I don't even know how that all works. If you live for Christ, according to this system, if you live for Christ, your thinking will change, which will lead to a renewing of your mind. Then you will have true personal transformation. Now, uh, here, here's the qu- crazy part. That's where this stops. Then it just jumps down to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. They don't offer any other advice there. Now, if you turn the page to page 95, they have a page here called Living for Christ. Living for Christ. Now, now, someone asked, well, what do they mean by living for Christ? Here we go. They say, rank the commands from this passage for yourself. From one, I do this the most consistently, to 10, I do this least of the commandments in this list. Put a star by the one or two where you would especially like God's help to grow. Now, this, I guess, is what they call living for Christ. This is what they call living for Christ. You ready? Because this section is called living for Christ. Now they give us a test. So do you want to know if you're living for Christ? Here's a test. Now this sounds like transformation, but supposedly I have to do this in order to get my mind to think differently so that I can get a renewed mind so I can get transformed. So I got to do this in order to be transformed. But this sounds like transformation. Are you ready for the test? Here we go. All right, now remember, we rank the commands from this passage for yourself. From number one, you do this most consistently to 10. I do this the least of all the commandments. Here we go. Number one, I love others without hypocrisy, gossip, malice, and unkindness in my heart. Someone said, this is a journey into double speak and sleight of hand. Yes, it is. All right, here we go. So, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to rank this today. You love others without hypocrisy, without gossip, without malice, without unkindness in my heart. Do you do that? Do you do that? Do you do that? I mean, that sounds like transformation. If you can walk around going, hey, hey, I pulled this off. I do this most consistently. I love people without hypocrisy. There is no gossip. There is no malice. There is no unkindness in my heart. Not only do I love them externally, I love them internally. And there is no malice. There is no bitterness. There is no unkindness. It is perfect. Now, remember, just so that remember, remember that powerful quote? We got in the last live broadcast, what makes a good work, a good work, God forgives it. What makes a good work actually a good work is that God has forgiven that good work because even your good work needs the forgiveness of God because your good work is always tainted, meaning you never love others without some form of hypocrisy. You love people sometimes out of selfish motivation because of what you get from it. Sometimes your external love does not anywhere come close to matching what's going on internally. You're guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. Everyone's guilty of it. Sometimes we don't even love God without wrong thinking motives and desires in our own heart. Our love for God needs God's forgiveness. Our love for others needs God's forgiveness. So if this is living for Christ, I don't know why I need to get to transformation because I would have to be transformed to even come close to doing this. There's number two. I hate what God calls evil and focuses on and hold tight to what he calls good. So anything God calls evil, you hate it. You hate it perfectly. You hate it consistently. Now, look, you know what? I wish I wish I could say, I love others without hypocrisy. There is no gossip, malice, and unkindness in my heart. And I hate what God calls evil. I truly wish I could say that. I truly do. But I don't do these things. I don't. Now, if I have to do this in order 
to get a change of thinking, which then will lead to a change of mind, which will then lead to my transformation. I don't even need my transformation if I'm pulling all of these off before it. Number three, I truly love other believers and consider them my brothers and sisters. Now, I truly love, meaning this is going beyond an external to an internal love. Next, I look for ways to take the first step in loving and honoring fellow believers. Do you take the first step? I mean, this study guide is used by millions of people all across the evangelical world. And there's people who are going to walk out with this list going, oh, I don't do this and I don't do this. Oh, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do this. And they're going to find themselves absolutely in a pit of despair, or they're going to have to start pretending that they're doing these things when everyone knows that they don't. So let me read that one again. I look for ways to take the first step in loving and honoring fellow believers. Next, I am diligent and fervent in how I walk in the spirit and serve the Lord. You are diligent and you are fervent in how you walk in the spirit and serve the Lord. I don't even know why I would need transformation in this. I seek to live with hope And a rejoicing heart. Do you live with hope and a rejoicing heart? You rejoice always. You give thanks in everything. I am patient when I face affliction and difficulties. Oh, that is so me. Okay, give me a break. I'm not, that's not me. I am diligent and committed to live in a constant state of prayer. Do you live in a constant state of prayer? I strive to be open-handed and generous to meet the needs of others. I strive to be open-handed and generous to meet the needs of others. Do you? Do you really do that? Now, is this one, is this a situation where I, you can say, I've, I've kept all of these things. I do all of these things. And then I say, Oh, really? How generous have you been? Hey, um, I need $75,000. Say I could just, I could pay off my, you know, mortgage and then. I'd be set for life. $75,000. I would never need anything ever again. I wouldn't need anything. When, when, once, once the house payment's gone, I, wouldn't need, I literally would not need anything. I mean, literally, I, w- I would be set. I, 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 would be, I would be good to go. Now, so, someone just said, I was trying to play a little game saying, well, well I'm not going to just remember when Jesus talked to the rich young ruler. I've done all of these things. Well, then go sell everything and give it to the poor. And he couldn't do it, right? We, it's a big, it's always big to say we do these things until we're put in a situation where someone says, well, then, then show me. Someone in chat just said, well, uh, well, how could you do this without already a difference in thinking? It's not as if this happens automatically. And if it does, I miss the train completely. Exactly. You would have to have a change of thinking even to do this. But supposedly their outline is you live for Christ. This changes your thinking, which leads to a renewed mind, which leads to personal, which leads, leads to a metamorphosis, a complete transformation. But to, they're saying I got to do all of this even to get the, you would have to have a change of mind even to even want to do any of this. And it says, I welcome others into my real life. I don't know exactly what that supposedly means. But remember, this is literally called living for Christ. This cannot be an accident unless whoever edited this did not give it five seconds of thought. Because on page 95, I'm holding this up like you can see it, right? If I was standing at church, I would show everybody. But it's right here. They had someone... They had to have caught, the editor had to have caught this. This is called living for Christ, and they just gave us one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten things that we have to do to prove that we're actually living for Christ. But remember their outline. Their outline is you live for Christ. This changes the way you think. This leads to a renewed mind, and then this leads to a personal transformation. But what they just outlined as living for Christ sounds like that would be complete transformation if I'm doing that. The whole 
thing seems to be backwards. And they, they never come back to explain any of this. None. That's, that's, they just jump around. Now, at some point, we'll work through the whole study guide. We will. But I simply wanted to turn on the microphone to lay out these little assignments for you and to really get us into the heart of this. And we already went a little further than I wanted to, but I still want you to have those assignments. Um, the first thing I want you to do is draw a little diagram on the far left-hand side of the page. Draw a little stick figure. That is you. Here you are. All the way in the other side of the page, just you can draw a circle, you can draw a stick figure again, it's you, and then just write around it, you can abbreviate it however you want to do it, be as creative as you want to be, uh, practical holiness, practical righteousness, practical godliness, you know, uh, not being fleshly, not being worldly. Note, note, you got to emphasize practical, 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 because we're not talking positional holiness, positional righteousness, because that is perfect and happened instantaneously in justification. Now, you draw a line between you on the left side and you on the right side. That line represents the path that you need to take to get from here to here. Now, on that line, I want you to outline all the things that stand in the way, all the obstacles, all the things that stand in the possible way of keeping you from getting there. And you can write the, what those things are. Clearly, the number one thing that needs to be written on that line is your depraved sinful nature, which you possess even after salvation, which everyone seems to ignore or seems to think that somehow it just magically disappears. But clearly it doesn't. Now, I want you to think, what would be the number one thing? What would be the biggest thing that would contribute from you being able to get past some of these obstacles and move forward? What would be the number one motivating determinant factor? Everyone has what they think it is. Some say, it's the Bible. So the way to get from here to here is you've got to read, 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 study, 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 study. Now, the question is, how much reading and how much studying, how, how much power does it have over the old nature? We could get in there, right? But they're going to put forth a different idea, right? And so, but I want you to at least ask that question. What is the thing that would most contribute? Then I want you to ask yourself, how does your thinking, how does new thinking, how does a changed mind impact your level of supposed practical sanctification? Not your positional sanctification. Then I want you to consider how does new thinking, how does a change of mind overcome a sinful nature, a depraved nature, because you still have it. Now, the study guide puts forth an idea that obviously the key to everything is a change of thinking. However, their outline seems to put living for Christ comes before the changing of your of your thinking, which then leads to a renewed mind, which leads to the transformation. Their outline seems to have it completely backwards. Now, if we go back to Romans 12, we know what precedes the thinking is mercies of God. That what we have to understand is, is because it's God's mercy that should be the number one motivator. So let me make it very clear. To me, what we get from Romans 12 is the thing that should motivate you the most to go from one side of that page to the other. The number one motivating factor, the thing that should motivate you, should drive you, is not threats. It's not the fear of public humiliation. It's not the fear of shame. It's not the fear of guilt. It should be God's mercy because he did not give you what you deserve. He did not. He gave you mercy and grace and forgiveness and love and, and the person of Jesus Christ who died for you and obeyed the law for you. That mercy should be the motivating factor. That should be the motivating factor. They, they, they kind of, they didn't really, they, they mentioned it, right? They mentioned it only, they mentioned it in light of, well, all those other things in the past were not meant to work, right? He called it the impermanent and insufficient means of removing human sin. The impermanent and insufficient means. See how easy I can say the word impermanent when I actually look at the word on the page? Okay. <laughs> when I don't look at it, uh, impairment and impairment. Okay. You're impaired. Okay. Imp the impermanent ways, they don't work, but Christ and his mercy gave us a permanent way to remove our sin in Christ Jesus and to forgive us. That mercy should motivate you. I think we have to have that down. I will argue that the, the most the most motivating factor in sanctification is mercy from God. It's not threats. 
That's not like if you don't do this and you don't do this, you prove you're not saved. What proves that I'm saved is the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? So we've articulated that. Now, where does the thinking come into play? Well, that comes in verse two. Be not transformed or be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. So we are not to be conformed to this world. Everyone can say amen to that. We are to be transformed, but the transformation and the lack of conformity, I'm not going to be conformed and I'm not going to be transformed by what? By the renewing of my mind. The renewing of my mind is what leads me not to be conformed and leads to my transformation. It's the renewing of the mind. Now, I believe the renewing of the mind happens first and foremost. I think this is very important. Happens very first and foremost in repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. That is the change of mind. And guess what happens? I, what do I begin to change my mind about? Listen, listen, listen. I change my mind about myself and I'm like, I'm a sinner and I deserve to go to hell. I change my mind about what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. And guess what? I now change my mind because of my change my mind. Guess what I perceive? I perceive his mercy. And it is the mercy that now motivates and moves me forward in the way of the transformation. Mercy. See, the, the renewing of your mind is what, is what leads to the lack of conformity to the world and the transformation. But the renewing of the mind is where salvation begins with repentance. Now, I know we could get to, into a discussion about the ordus salutis and the order of salvation. And, and someone sent me an email just a couple of hours ago about that. It's a great email, and we will talk about that more. But for now, I'm not trying to get into, well, here's the reformed ordus of salutis. And here, I'm not trying to get into all of that at this moment, but we will look at it. But for our practical purposes here, the renewing of your mind happens in, in, in the initial stages of salvation. God has to grant us repentance, and that repentance is a change of mind. So now I would change my mind about myself. I change my mind about God. I change my mind about sin. I change my mind about salvation. Now I can truly perceive that mercy. Now that mercy is what's going to motivate me. And it's the changing of mind that perceives the mercy, and the mercy is what motivates me not to be conformed to this world, but to be ye transformed by the renewing of the mind. And the renewing of the mind then lets me see what is the will of God, which is Scripture. I change my mind about the Scripture. And how do I change? I now believe that these words are true. And now I see what God wants me to do. He doesn't want me to do this, and he doesn't want me to do that. And I'm motivated to try to keep it because of God's mercy. I don't think it's a change of mind that something I do. Now, I think there is a progressive renewing of the mind. The initial, I begin, I change, guess what I'm going to change my mind about? I'm going to change my mind about this, the scripture. That is going to get me to feed upon it and read it and read it. And then I'm going to perceive then the will of God, meaning God wants me to love people a certain way. God wants me to do this, but it's going to make me realize how far I fall short. I think the controlling principle here is, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God is the controlling principle. That's the motivator. So I'm going to, if I'm going to try to chart this out, now this is all happening in real time here. This was not planned out before. All right. I'm going to try to uh, map this out. I, I, I would challenge you. I would challenge you to do this yourself. I would challenge you to do this yourself. All right. All right. Are you ready? All right. Here we go. All right. I'm going to try to map this out. I'm going to start because we have their outline and their outline I think is broken. So I'm going to try to outline this ourselves. In fact, I'm going to open up the study guide. I'm going to open up the study guide. I know we're at 58 minutes and I'm going to run out of time. I am going to find, see, where did they put their, sorry, I'm hitting the microphone. Where did they put their outline? Okay, they got their outline here. Okay, I'm going to put, what do we call this? I'm going to call it our, I'm just going to call it sanc, sanctification, outline. 
I know I'm going to have to do this again. All right. So number one, I'm going to put, um, I'm going to put God's mercy. I'm just going to, this may not work perfectly, but I'm going to start with God's mercy. Because God's mercy precedes everything, right? It's God's mercy that he chose and elected me, right? It's God's mercy that he effectually called me. It's God's mercy. I think it precedes everything, right? God's mercy. Then he has to grant me repentance and faith, right? So theirs is the renewing of the mind. Then the renewing of the mind. The renewing of the mind. Now, guess what the renewing of the mind does? Number three, the renewing of the mind leads to me, uh, the renewing of the mind, I'm going to put, uh, let's see, I'm just going to put the renewing of the mind because the renewing of the mind now lets me see and I change my mind about everything. God, I see, I, I, I it, it allows me, I, I change my mind about everything, right? I change my mind about everything. All right. Then, then I'm going to, I'm going to put uh, God's mercy, renewing of the mind, then I'm going to put, um, how do I want to do this? I'm going to put then lack of conformity. Lack of conformity to the world, right? Because you see that. And be not conformed to this world, a lack of conformity to the world. Number four, um, transformation. And then number five, knowing or knowledge. All right. So how does this work? This is the way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do so. God's mercy precedes everything else because God chose and elected a people for himself. Number two, then the renewing of the mind. He grants repentance, which in and of itself is an act of God's mercy. This renewing of the mind, now I, I begin to see and change my mind in how I think about me, how I think about the word, word. I begin to perceive and understand God's mercy because I now perceive God's mercy and I now begin to understand salvation and I understand what God has done for me and then I'm, I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This begins to lead me to not being trying, uh, I be, I, there's less and less conformity to this world. There's still going to be some, obviously, but there's a lack of conformity, right? Because I stopped conforming to this world because my mind has changed. My mind has changed all, all in, initially, right? Then I'm going to say this leads to uh, transformation, right? It's the renewing of the mind that leads to the transformation. And then this leads to the knowing. The knowing, then I'm going to put leads to number six, um, more Renewing. Because now that last part in Romans 12, that you may pr prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The more, the, the initial, the initial renewing of the mind begins the process. And then that's going to lead to knowing the will and the knowing of the will will lead to more renewing of the mind. Now you, you can challenge my, my outline here. So it starts with God's mercy, then it goes with the renewing of the mind, which produces a lack of conformity, which brings to some level of some level of transformation. It flows from this. There's going to be some. Look, we do know changing your mind about anything can have massive impacts on transformation. I mean, look, we, this is not even a Christian concept. This is just a practical, philosophical, psychological concept. If you truly can change your mind, so many things flow from that. We know that to be a fact. And then uh, you're going to know, we're going to know the will of God, which then will lead to more renewing of the mind. And the more renewing of the mind leads to then more perception of God's mercy, lack of conformity, and transformation. There we go. There we go. So I am going to go with um, that concept there. I'm going to go with that concept. All right. Now we're at 63 minutes. I'm going to have to stop. I'm going to have to stop. I'm going to have to stop. We went in. We went in that way. 
we we went all the way in there, but I, I can't believe their their outline they give is so crazy, and I can't believe they tried to uh, they on purpose tried to mess me up by putting the word impermanent in this study guide. I do not know why, all right, but there there it is. Okay. Oh. I don't. I don't know if they're saying much better. Someone in the in the notes said much better with a smiling face. Either they're mocking me because I said impermanent finally correctly, or they are actually being nice and saying that my outline is much better than their outline. I don't know. Contrast the two outlines, or do this: write your own outline and email it to me at newsif at yahoo.com. But don't forget those other assignments. I want you to really work on your little diagram. List all those things in the middle, right? I want you to know what the, okay. Oh, someone says my outline. Okay, good. Look at them being nice. All right. I don't have to send them money or something. Okay. All right. Then I want you to, what, what do you think is the number one contributing factor to get you from one side of the page to the other? And then I want you to think about how new thinking impacts your level of sanctification. And then I want you to know how your new thinking, how much power does new thinking have over your sinful nature? Because we do have to, we cannot ignore that reality that no matter what our outline looks like, there's always going to be, it's never going to anywhere be near perfection because we're going to always be in a perpetual state of sin. All right. Wow. Woo. That was a lot to work on. See, you never know what's going to happen when you tune in to the Theology Central podcast. All right, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. You're now free to Take off your thinking cap for a while. Just give yourself about a 30-minute break. Put it back on and then get to work. And I want you to have this all figured out. And I want all the answers within the next hour. All right. There you go. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the person who contributed so much in the the comments. I do appreciate that because, man, this was a lot to try to work through. All right. Uh, To all the people who tuned in, wherever you're listening, we greatly appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I think we did. I think we did okay. I think we did pretty good. Always, I always hate because and 66 minutes of broadcasting, the only thing I'm going to remember out of 66 minutes of broadcasting is the word impermanent. That's all I'm going to re- All I'm going to remember out of 66 minutes is I couldn't get the word impermanent right. I could not get it right. I could not get it right. Mainly because, no excuse, I was just like, where are they? I want them to get to the thinking and they're just off getting into all these co- issues with the new covenant. And I'm like, I can't do this right now. I don't want to go re-preach Jeremiah 31, but this whole thing is going off the rails. And then they never got back to what I really, then they, then they dropped that crazy outline. And then in the very next page, they basically like to live for Christ is full transformation. <laughs> it's like, well, then I, I don't, I'm basically to live for Christ basically means being perfect. So I, the whole thing was, uh, was bizarre. All right. Thank you very much. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Tuesday afternoon into Tuesday evening. And we'll probably doing broadcast at some point, maybe a late night one. I don't know. We will see. Thanks for listening. God bless.